Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a new plan to integrate Boston public school students in the English language learners program has led to multiple resignations by advisory board members. Plus, Biden's new Venezuelan policy relaxing oil sanctions rejects Trump policy and may create a potential political boost in Florida. And a flag mix-up results in a cultural snafu in the new best-selling Spider-Man video game. That and more on our Latinx News Roundtable. Later in the show, what does it mean to be Asian in a country where everything is black and white? In her new memoir, Julia Lee, the daughter of Korean immigrants turned Princeton and Harvard-trained professor, explores the state of being in between. Everything in this culture is reinforcing this idea that there's a racial hierarchy and that if you want to be treated better, then the people who got to be treated better were always white. Julia Lee's memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me now, Julio Ricardo Varela, MSNBC opinion columnist and founder of Latino Rebels. Hi, Julio. Hey, Kelly. And also with me, Marcella Garcia, an opinion columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. Thanks for joining me, Marcella. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Well, I want to start off with uh, something that's brewing here in uh, Boston, particularly with Boston Public Schools. Uh, the superintendent of BPS, Mary Skipper, uh, made a plan called the Inclusion Education Plan. This is two weeks ago, uh, which will mean that uh, English language learners, instead of being taught separately in their native language, will be in regular classes and receive support um, for second second language support as they needed English as English as a second language support as they needed. Um, this was immediately rejected by members of a task force assigned to pay attention um, to the English language learners, the way they learn and the program itself. Eight of them resigned and sent a letter about their resignation. Another resigned separately. So of the 13 members, by by my count, there's only four left. Um, This is a big issue, Marcella. Um, How will this be resolved, do you think? So there's a few issues to unpack here. I've been speaking, actually, with Miren Uriarte, um, one of the members of the the, uh, task force that resigned, and she actually... Uh, wrote an op-ed with uh, another member of the uh, task force. Uh, she, they, they both wrote wrote an op-ed for for the Globe, explaining the reasons for the resignation and ultimately, like taking a huge step back. You know, in theory, what BPS, what Superintendent Skipper is saying that English language learners shouldn't be uh, be segregated when they you know, when they learn, it sounds okay. I mean, I think that's a that's a goal, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think. The groups, the task force, and and the district should be working towards that goal. I think where they differ is how to get there, because right now the reality is that a third of 
BPS students is a foreign born. I mean, they 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 have they, they, their primary language is not English, and so, and not only that, a lot of them come in older in the later grades, like in the you know in middle to to high school, and teaching them English versus teaching a second grade or third grader is very different. And so, and when you when you're teaching um, a second grader or even like a ninth grader. Uh, you know, academic like English or math in English, but that's not their primary language, and they're still trying to learn English is a recipe for disaster. And so now that there and there are a lot of different ways to get there, there are bilingual programs, and that's what the task force is advocating for. It's not like they don't want kids to be, you know, included in in general education classroom. That's not the issue here. The issue is that there are a lot of tools to get kids transition into that ultimate goal, you know, setting, right? That's an ideal setting for them. They need help together and they need instruction in their, in their native language. And that's what they're advocating for. And, and their resignation was ultimately a stance, a very, very significant stance against these. So a couple of things, Julio, before you respond, first of all, most of the, most of the teachers in the, now what would be inclusive setting are not bilingual. Um, and Correct. I just want to raise up something that um, that Marcella said. So now you're faced with learning English while learning other subjects. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, academic English. You're learning academic. Okay. All right. Here is, I'm going to make a reveal. I used to work in this area at Houghton Mifflin, and I headed up the ESL bilingual department in the aughts. Um, and I also worked in the 90s. That was my... Uh, career between being a journalist. I started as a journalist. I went into educational publishing. I went back to journalism. And I was at Houghton Mifflin at a time when question two in Massachusetts um, was rejected, uh, basically rejecting bilingual education. And people need to go back to history. The late 90s, there was a big in initiative in California by you know, tech billionaire, millionaire, whatever he was, Ron Unz, about this. And it's the end of bilingual education. So this has, you know, I want to give a little history and context because, and I'm, what I'm going to say now is because I, I used to present at BPS. I used to work in school districts and in, uh, in, in schools in the district. BPS has never, ever, ever put English language learners at the forefront. That's not harsh. It's the truth. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? What has happened in this city is a travesty a travesty to young learners and BPS is solely to blame. And when you begin to look at the history of the post busing era in, in the city and who stayed and the lack of vision that the city had, I'm telling you, I went to these, I, I was presenting, I, I was in these classrooms. It was sad. There were moments where I saw these pockets of bilingual education brilliance uh, for example, like in the Blackstone School in, in the South End, which had a high, highly, um, I believe it was Puerto Rican at the time. Um, and this whole notion of making kids bilingual should have been the vision of BPS. It never was. Okay. And we're still paying the price of decisions and poor decisions that were made in the 90s and in the, in the 2000s. And I'm with you, Marcella. I know the people. Uh, who resigned, the, the research is 100% clear 
and you, I, and believe me, this was my career. This was my career. Teaching kids academic content in their native language led to more academic success. Investing in bilingual education led to more academic success. And it's a shame that the city of Boston, it's a shame that, that Superintendent Skipper, it's a shame that Mayor Wu are doing this. I understand in practice, it sounds really good, but here's the thing, you just said it, Callie, and you just said it, Marcella, then hire bilingual teachers. Yeah. Like, fact, like be inclusive. Really yeah, go, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. done. I'm done with that's this. Like, really go good. ahead, Marcella. That's a really good point because I think that is one of the obstacles, but it's an easy, it's an easy obstacle to, to Absolutely. remove. Hire more bilingual teachers, and and you know the it, it is one hundred percent true what you, what Julio said that this has been going on for a long time. And at the end of the day, we are here in twenty twenty three with uh, district uh, and leaders who are not putting English language learners as a priority. They never despite have. Like, they never fact, have. Right, and despite the fact that they, you know, again, uh, ha they're a significant part of the student population, and right now. Again, this is according to, to Miren Uriarte, you know, the, one of the members of the task force. Right now, VPS still remains a largely English-only environment. Exactly. English emotion, that is against research. That's because 93% of English learners are not enrolled in dual language. 93. Only 7% learn in, you know, in, in a, in a research-approved and, you know, evidence-based way. And we are failing generations of students. We have been doing that. And We've so created two classes. We've created two yeah. classes in Boston. And, it, you know, I, I, I'm very passionate about this because this was my work. And you know how hard it is to go in when you bring in evidence-based programs to districts, not only Boston, but other urban districts. I mean, I went all over the country. And it sound, it's like, Marcella, what you just said, it sounds really good in practice, yeah. right, in theory. And we had it. We had evidence-based programs. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the districts didn't use them. And that's what it comes down to. And, and I'm sitting here just looking at what's happening and saying to myself, it's 2023. Mm -hmm. And these are the same issues that propped up when I started as a young editor at Houghton Mifflin in 1991. Well, here's the button on this. Uh, the change is due to take effect next year in grades K through 8 and then the following year in grades 9 through 12. But obviously, um, there's going to be a lot of discussion and who knows what else uh, before that happens. And students want to learn English. And students want to learn English. I don't yeah. want to give the, 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 the false impression because that's the other thing that happens here when you bring it in a political or when you talk about it here in the Boston area. It's like, well, these kids need to learn English. They want to. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. A really good point. Okay, I, was I, did I come off too angry there? No, well, no that's, okay. that's your take on it. Now we're just trying to understand what the deal is. That's, that's why you're here to, to give you us can, the Everyone can, can act, act, tweet at me um, <laughs> after this show. All right, well, I'm going to move on to um, equally depressing news, potentially. Um, the Latino poverty rate in Massachusetts is still high, even though overall, Massachusetts has a lower poverty rate than um, a lot of other states. Now, it went down, but it's still double that of every other group. Marcella. Last year, I wrote a column about this because based on a report, actually, that came from the Gaston Institute, that Steph Solis at Axios, who reported on this new data, 
um, mentions that that report uh, it came out in 2022 using pre-pandemic data. We're talking about 2019 pre-pandemic. Right. right. Back then, the poverty rate of Latinos in Massachusetts was nearly 25 percent. One in four Latinos was suffering from poverty in the state. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. You can imagine what happened to that rate, right? And so now we have this new data that that came down, uh, showing that, that that rate came down, but it's still obviously very, uh, co- compared to other groups and the national rate and the state uh, average is just dismal, right? And so I think... I think what I decried last year is that no, we're not talking about this. We're not unpacking the the reasons why that is. I mean, we were just talking about education. That is one, unemployment, um, all these other policy, housing. Uh, you know, they all have to do, and they all obviously impact this poverty rate. But we're not talking about it. Uh, that we don't see policymakers. We don't see decision makers really, really engaging in a conversation about this. And the thing that always uh, strikes me as just unbelievable is that the better Latinos make, the better the state is, obviously, as a group, like we are all, we all benefit from that. And the fact that we're not paying attention to it the way we should, discussing policies, discussing ways to improve outcomes for Latinos in Massachusetts, it's just so disappointing. And and I mean I don't I don't know other than shout it from the rooftops every day I don't know what else to do, to because it is still striking to me that people oh really that's the rate oh wow you know they always go like that they people yeah. just don't know. But I think I want to pick up Julio have you pick up um, one of Marcella's points which is that um, as the worst of us goes so goes that impacts all of us so if if uh, we're talking about. Uh, decreasing the uh, the poverty rate at least to normal, not double. I mean that has an impact positively on all of the Massachusetts economy, not just Latinos. Remember the report that talked about how the Latino community was actually saving the city of Boston economically, right? I don't remember when it came out, but we talked about it. And this, and I just want to connect the dots, right? This is so obvious. Like what Marcella said, you know, we have created. I'm sorry, not we, but, you know, what has been created has been an underclass in in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and it impacts education, it impacts housing, it impacts economic um, inequality, it impacts economic movement, and it's exactly, and I'm with Marcella, like, you know, I was just out in Western Mass uh, a couple of days ago, and when I go out there, I see all the Puerto Rican flags, and, you know, I've seen a couple of uh, Puerto Rican license plates. And I go through some some communities and proud people, you know, proud Puerto Rican community that has roots in Western Mass. And I see it, right? I see the poverty, right? And and this has been a question of invisibility. This has been a question of ignoring this community. Um, and I'm with you, Marcella. Like, where is the political will? Where is the political action? Because in the end, the entire state will benefit. Right. But if, I don't think if, people understand that. They don't understand. They don't they don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's like if you uplift mm-hmm. the boats, yeah, this state will get through, will move into the 21st century in a better place. But what what it has become is like, especially in the city of Boston and, and the surrounding um, metro suburbs, like in the Chelsea's and the Everett's of the world, that it has become two worlds. And we saw it in the pandemic. 
And these were pre-pandemic numbers. And I would venture to guess that these numbers continue to, they, they're not improving. And where is the political will? I have yet to see it on, on, a, on a more uh, holistic <laughs> approach. You know, I'll read Marcella's columns. I'll talk to fellow Latino and Latina leaders in, in, the, in the state. And it's, it's hard. It's an uphill fight because allyship is just not there just yet. I'm hoping it, you know, but I'm always hopeful. I think the numbers eventually will, will shift more to, towards the community. And this is a long process, but I mean, the data is the data and it's clear and it hasn't really changed. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela, an MSNBC opinion columnist, and Marcella Garcia, an associate editor at the Boston Globe. We're discussing Latinx news in Boston and nationwide. Just to make people clear, um, in Suffolk County, and that's home to communities in Revere and Chelsea, a lot of Latinos living there. Um, Jamaica Plain, East Boston neighborhood. Eastie. Yes. The poverty rate is 21.7%. That's twice the white poverty rate of 12%. So we're talking real real numbers in case people sit thinking it's exaggerated. No. All right. I'm going to do a, 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 a shift to a story that um, uh, you wrote about uh, Julio, which is uh, Biden's deal with Venezuela. People are going to say, well, what does it have to do with anything? Well, it actually is very interesting um, in terms Thank of... Thank you, Callie. I, I did write it for MSNBC. And, you know, my editors will be happy. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying that this is something that people... This is, again, not people putting the dots together. So this is uh, uh, Biden reverses the Trump policy, for one thing, but it also may create uh, a space for him to sort of improve his political standing in Florida, where now Venezuelans are the third highest population. But first, break down what happened. There was an easing of oil sanctions against Venezuela on a condition. You explain the condition. Well, basically what happened, the condition is we will ease the oil sanctions if you allow for freer and more fair elections next year, because there is going to be an election in 2024 in Venezuela that um, that there is going to be an, a, an opposition candidate and it's not going to be splintered. And and the United States is saying, you know what, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll help with some we'll ease some oil sanctions. But you have to, you know, ease some of, you know, be a little bit more democratic. You know, Venezuela is a third rail issue. I'm past just, you know, I'm past under I'm past explaining it. The reality is, however you spin it, the Nicolas Maduro administration, which leans to the left, is an authoritarian government. There's no other way to put it. And, you know, people on the left, will, especially the Latin American left, will come after me or others who, who say that. And, you know, I'm an agent of the U.S. CIA or whatever. Right. I'm you know, I'm an interventionist. I'm like, no, I, I here's the reason why I know this, because I know so many Venezuelans in the last 30 years that have moved up to Massachusetts who who come from the Hugo Chavez, admit, you know, from those days of Hugo Chavez and have said, you know, under Maduro, life is tougher and you got to make the connections, right? Why do you see more Venezuelans migrating to the United States? Why do you, you know, why are these Venezuelan communities like places in, in Florida, like Weston or even in Houston, Texas or other places where Venezuelans are a thriving community? So 
obviously there's a little bit of electoral politics here for Biden because, you know, getting some votes in 2024 in, in Florida make a lot of sense. And there's plenty of Venezuelans who who tend to agree with loosening sanctions and this hard, tough policy that Trump instituted against the Maduro, sorry, against the Maduro regime never really materialized in anything. So why not? And, you know, for someone who has written critical pieces of President Biden, I think this was a really smart move from 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 his administration and also from his campaign, because this is coming from as because there's plenty, there's people who understand the Venezuelan situation who are Latinos and Latinas in his reelection campaign who understand the nuances of like, wow, this could be a, a voting issue that could get more people in Florida, more Venezuelan voters, which are the fastest growing sector in Florida for Latino voters to, to vote Democratic. I think the, the, the impact on electoral politics here in favor or against Biden or, or Trump, right, uh, will depend on how this deal unfolds. And I should know that it's already going bad because Maduro already <laughs> moved to prohibit, you know, despite his promise of fair election yeah. in signing this agreement, he already suspended the results of the presidential primary that was held last month. Exactly. And so it's already it's already off to a bad start. That's all. And I'm that's a say. concern. And that's a concern that everyone who and who who critique this, you know, it's kind of, you know, by the Biden administration making this move, but saying, hey, we still have to watch this. This is not a done deal. But I, I do applaud the administration for looking at this and understanding that this is a single issue voting, uh, you know, topic that could motivate people in Florida or in Texas who are of Venezuelan descent to vote Democratic, if it works out. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Julio Ricardo Varela, an MSNBC opinion columnist, and Marcella Garcia, an associate editor at the Boston Globe. We're getting the latest in Latinx news. Um, I want to squeeze in a couple things more. Uh, Marcella, your piece about uh, Henry Santana, who is a candidate at large for the Boston City Council. Um, two things about it. Um, you've been speaking out, not just recently, but a long time. In fact, Julio has, too, about the need to have more uh, political representation among Latinos. Um, and would he, if he were elected, of course, he'd, he'd add to that. But also his particular story just talks about how tough it is. Um, and we've had these conversations before for persons of color to try to get the support they need financially and and, you know, make the slog toward the end. Um, so uh, a little bit about Henry Santana and um, what's it looking like for him? Yeah, so he he is a former alum of the uh, Michelle Wu administration. He is a Dominican kid who moved here with his parents when he was little. Mm. And he first um, faced some criticism in the when he launched his campaign because he was criticized because he didn't have a voting record even though he's a citizen and and he was sort of uh, explaining why. And, and the reason is this long ordeal with the immigration system. And if it, it, you know, which is actually something that is going to resonate with a lot of Bostonians, because if you have had to deal with the immigration system, you are in a class, uh, you understand how nonsensical and completely unreasonable and just there's delays, this and that. Long story yeah. short, he was basically delayed in getting his citizenship, not his citizenship, his citizenship certificate, his naturalization certificate. He wanted 
prove that he was a citizen because sometimes people are just so afraid. I mean, even someone who's educated, who's professional, you want to have proof that you're a citizen because you, you just never know who's going to call into question your citizenship. And that's why he didn't vote. The story is complicated because it, it involves a lot of agencies and, and steps and immigration lawyers, this and that. But I kind of wanted to explain that in my column. But the most important thing is that I found out that after he launched his campaign, he was forced basically to take a job and the, right. because he couldn't support himself. He was running out of his savings. And he decided to take a job as uh, basically a, a security guard in a residential building in the overnight shift. So he's a security guard by night and he campaigns during the day. And of course, the reason why he had to take that night shift is so that he could get that he could still have time uh, during the day to do to campaign. And so I just thought that it was a, an example, right, a, a reflection of all these barriers that typically people of color face more than other candidates who decide to run for office. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons why candidates of color decide not to run, because it's yeah. hard to it's hard not just to run a campaign, to put yourself out there, but the money, the money aspect, not just fundraising for your campaign. How are you going to support yourself? He rents an apartment. His parents live in public housing. He cannot move out of that apartment to save money into his public, into his parents' public housing apartment because then they are going to be disqualified because of his own income. And so it's a catch-2020. He has to stay in an apartment. He has to pay rent. He's not working. And so it's, it's just tough. And, and I kind of wanted to... I wanted to highlight and sort of uplift that part of, of elections that we often don't um, talk about when we call for more political representation. Right. Stop. Exactly. exactly. And a product and a, and this is an example of like what you wrote in your piece, Marcella, a first time candidate, an immigrant who grew up in the city's public housing and a product of the Boston public schools. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And here we go again. Right. Yeah. So here's a chance to kind of break the pattern and Henry Santana has, you know, he has everything. He checks, you know, I hate to say check all the boxes, but there's a lot there. He's a great candidate. And the struggles in the city's political system to break through. We yeah. should be uplifting the Henry Santanas of the world because by having Henry Santanas on the city council, we have a city council that more accurately that reflects the city of Boston. And, you know, it's, and but this is the reality. This is the reality. This is when we talk about the underclass, even in trying to break political representation, the underclass in the city still has all these struggles. So kudos to you, Marcella, for for highlighting the realities of this. All right. Now, total change of subject, but we got to get this one in the really the video game that everybody was waiting for Marvel Spider-Man 2. People had to go uh, back to the developers and said, um, you need to correct a few scenes because you seem to have confused the Puerto Rican and the Cuban flags. And the game is known to celebrate the main character's Puerto Rican heritage. But of course, the developers, I guess, not of course, but I guess they just couldn't figure it out. Um, this is a this is a uh, some sound from video game critic Jose Rivera, what he had to say about the flag mix up. 
we love Cuba. It's nothing against Cuba, but the character is Puerto Rican. And it's even more ironic because there's a suit called the Boricua suit, which has the Puerto Rican flag already in the game. To Insomniac's credit, they did address this on the day of release, as soon as it happened. James Stevenson, which is one of the marketing heads at Insomniac, told them, yeah, we're gonna get a fix for that. Next time that I logged in, there was an update with a patch, and bam, ahí está mi bonita bandera, there it is. Mwah. This is a great opportunity to remind all these studios that, yeah, we pay attention to detail, especially with something as critical as the character's heritage or identity. Now, Insomniac does refer to the people who make the game, by the way, not the people who couldn't sleep and messed up because yeah. maybe, maybe they were sleepy. <laughs> well, yeah, they probably were. I'm sorry. Can I, <laughs> yeah. As the Puerto Rican of this, of the three of us, this is perhaps one of the biggest pet peeves because there's been a constant pattern of this over the years. Really? And it's almost because, oh, yeah, it's almost like oh. a running joke now. You know, and so let's just for our listeners. For your listeners, Callie, just mm -hmm. really quick, the Cuban flag and the Puerto Rican flag look similar. And there's a lot of historical reasons for it because they both were, you know, they were in the, the 19th century. They had independence movements and they had a single star with, you know, with with uh, with stripes. And the difference is that the Puerto Rican flag, the triangles blue and the stripes are red and the Cuban flag, the triangles red and the stripes are blue. And it's been so confused. It, I, I laugh because I, I even go, I, when I saw it, I'm like, oh, here we go again. So you would think that all these experts can just do a Google search and just enter Puerto Rican flag and then you're good because you can fact check it in a second. Now, you know, as a Puerto Rican, like we, the flag is our life in a lot of ways because the flag is represented sort of the resistance movement, it's, repre it's represented our association with the United States, our complex colonial relationship with the United States. So it's very personal. And, but I will say to my fellow Cubanos out there, we love Cubans too. Like it, I, I agree with the, with the <laughs> video game critic. You know, I just, it's just, it's just kind of one of those things that continues to happen and it just shouldn't. It's just simple, it simple facts. It just shouldn't, that's all. I want to point out, Marcella, that this game, just so people understand how popular, sold 2.5 million copies within the first 24 hours. So it's not a small mistake. They need to really get this straight because um, a lot of people are looking at the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. The thing that, that gets me is that, look, I have made that mistake. and and But it, it takes, like Julio said, a couple of seconds to rule. And if you are too busy because you work in, you're creating a game, whatever, whatever. You hire people that take care so, of this. That's when equity and inclusion comes into play. And that tells me that this company has nothing, who does obviously has nobody in their team. How many Puerto Rican game designers? That's the question right. I would ask them, right? right. Mm. You don't have like one Puerto Rican game designer to be like, yo, that's yeah. the wrong flag. I mean, it's yeah. simple as that. Oh, anyway. hi, I mean, hire a company to do, like you said, it's just basic fact checking. Yeah. And so because that that signals your commitment to getting it right. And obviously they don't have it. Don't have it. OK, um, with seconds to go, just want to get y'all's take on the most fabulous SNL with Bad Bunny, which was all ah. bilingual, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Benito. And, <laughs> and I'm very excited to be here on Sabado Gigante. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, SNL, SNL. Uh, yeah, another Puerto Rican, another Puerto Rican. Wow. He crushed it. 
And I loved it. And I love the fact that there was a Spanish, a, a, a skit, a Spanish language skit. That I was actually, amazing. Yeah, I actually know one of one of the extras in the skit. I've done work with Michael Diaz, <laughs> also known as Juan Bago. Like I was like, oh, my God, I even know the people in the skit. It was brilliant. <laughs> and kudos for Saturday Night Live. I know it has a very, uh, you know, complicated history when it comes to Latino mm -hmm. representation. And, you know, but it's definitely a push forward and. I want more. So there. It was very funny, I have to say. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's the thing. And I think it has to do with they have a writer and, and a performer, an SNL cast Marcelo. Yeah. Who is Marcelo, who's from Cuba and obviously speaks Spanish. And you have to, I mean, it shows the impact of representation. To go back to one of our themes, this shows the impact of representation. Obviously, Marcelo is behind or, or was a huge, I, I got I have to guess that he was a huge driver and a huge force behind this whole episode. Writing and performing too, obviously, in that uh, Spanish language only uh, skit, he was, uh, he was in it too. And, and it was really funny writing. And again, it goes back to the issue of representation. You've got to have people who know what they're talking about when they write comedy. And to have someone like that in SNL, it just shows the promise of, of, uh, the commitment to do right by um, people of color in this country. That, that's a great place to leave it, Marcella. <laughs> I love it. Also, also, it also helps to have somebody with a lot of power, like Bad Bunny, to, to call exactly. Some you know. That's true. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for joining me. It's a great conversation, always. Thanks, Callie. <laughs> thank you for having us. Julio Ricardo Varela is an MSNBC opinion columnist and founder of Latino Rebels. Marcella Garcia is an opinion columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. Coming up, author Julia Lee spent much of her formative years angry about never being seen, ashamed that she felt powerless as a Korean woman and suffering from generational trauma passed down from her immigrant parents. In her new memoir, Lee offers fiercely passionate and personal insights into racial hierarchy, white supremacy, gender, and privilege, and examines how her own biases have shaped her perspective. Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. <laughs> <laughs>